So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 today. But before we get there, I want to refer to a, a couple verses in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John says this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. I love that passage. I love that passage. In that passage... I mean, it's very, very clear what John says that that as the people of God, when we have this hope, well, first of all, I hope you have that hope. I hope you have that hope within that you and you anticipate, you desire the Lord's return. Because as the people of God, exactly what John is saying, guys, that is our greatest hope we have. That is the fulfillment of what He has done for us. When He comes back and, and, and really our salvation, that's when it's complete. We'll see, we will receive our resurrected bodies on that day and what a glorious day. That is our ultimate final hope. Now obviously, none of this would be true without His death on the cross, without His resurrection from the dead. But that day, that is our greatest hope. And... And he says it purifies us. When we think about that day, it should purify us. It should, God should use it to sanctify us. And we could just think of it this way, guys. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming back today at 6 o'clock, tomorrow at noon, obviously we don't know that, but if we could somehow know that, would it not purify you? Would it not change the way you live? That's what John's saying. As we think about the second coming of Christ, His return, nobody knows when it's going to be. But thinking about it, it has a purifying effect. It should. And so, obviously, if God wants us to think about His return, this is a truth that the devil does not want you thinking about. Okay, We can always assume that. The devil does not want us thinking about, about the second coming of Christ. And any seeds of doubt that He can plant in your life and in my life and in our hearts, He will do. He, he loves to, even the Christian, He loves to lull us asleep, so to speak, to get our minds dull where we're, not even, where we're not even thinking about these kind of things because it does affect the way we live. We can get so caught up in this world and we're not thinking about the return of Christ and we can be lulled to sleep spiritually. He doesn't want you having... Hope, which is what John tells us. Joy. He doesn't want us being purified by thinking about the return of Christ our Lord. And He certainly doesn't want you and I warning the world that this is a reality. Right? He doesn't want us thinking about these things. And so He has the devil, Satan has His his poor, blind, deceived ambassadors. In this, in this text today, they're described as mockers. He has them seeking to deceive others. And, and they're all in this world. Some of them, you know, some of them have a uh, robe of religion on. Uh, many are in secular universities. But, uh, but he has his, his false disciples, his false ambassadors, anything he can do to get, to get the world to doubt his coming and even, and even um, put the children of God to sleep, so to speak. He will do. And so I believe, you've heard me say this before, guys, but I believe this is a great need of our day uh, to reflect on. To reflect on and to be reminded of these great and glorious truths of the Lord's return. I don't think the church thinks about it enough. I don't think we talk about it enough. I think we shy away from discussing the Lord's return because we're intimidated by these things or because maybe we won't agree on every single thing. We're not, we're not going to agree on every single detail. That's not the point. Jesus Christ is returning. That we can all agree on. We'll, we'll know all the details when it happens. But Jesus Christ is returning and it's our, it's our greatest hope. He is returning 
as we've seen in this book, to judge the ungodly and to rescue His righteous ones. That is great hope as we see the world going to hell in a handbasket. As we see it just going insane before our very eyes. Christ is coming back. He is returning. And He will make all things new. And I, I can't wait to that day. And obviously we know that there's only going to be a generation of people alive when it happens. But beloved, even if we have already passed on and we have been with the Lord, our spirits, our bodies will be resurrected on that day. The final consummation of these things. It will affect, have you heard me, I think I said just a few weeks ago, it will affect every person, whether you're alive on this earth or whether you're already dead and gone, there will be a final resurrection of all the just and the unjust. It's the consummation of history as we know it. And so, we need to think about these things. And that's what Peter's going to tell us today. Tell his readers. And and he's going to tell us to be reminded of these things. Remember the sermon a few weeks ago, guys? Several weeks ago? Be stirred up. Peter's referring. He's going back to that same language. That we need to be stirred up. We need to be reminded of these things. Except today, he is really... uh, Talking about a certain reality, and that's the second coming. So let's look at the text. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1-7. through 7. Peter says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Father, we we come before You today, Lord, and I just ask You to help me today. Lord, help me by Your Holy Spirit to just communicate this text clearly, Lord. And Father, by the illuminating power of Your Spirit, Lord, Father, give Your people today understanding of this text and how to apply it. And Lord, may Christ be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So the truth that I want you to consider today, guys, on the back of your bulletin is this. You and I need to be stirred up, the text says, because mockers will come who ignore the past, hoping to escape the future. Okay, We need to be stirred up because mockers will come who ignore the past, hoping that they can escape the future. That's what we got going on in this text today. And we're going to break that down. We're going to break that statement down. And the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 is how are we stirred up? How are we stirred up? Verses 1 and 2 tell us. So Peter says in verses 1 and 2, I'm just going to read those two verses and then we'll look at it. This is now, beloved, the second letter which I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He said this is the second letter. Uh, Most simply think he's referring to his first epistle, his first letter. So he said this is the second letter. And what we see here, guys, In these short verses, it even says, I don't know what the heading says in your Bible, but in my Bible, it even says that these two verses remind us of the purpose of this letter. It's good to be reminded as you're going through a letter, okay, what's the main theme here? What's the purpose? It's this very thing. Because he was talking about this in chapter 1. If you guys remember, back in chapter 1, in verses 12 through 15, we saw the same language. And he says this in in chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth in which is present with you. 
I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. In verses 12 and 13. So we talked about that several weeks ago. The, the context of that is he was reminding them of the things that he had just covered in verses 1 through 11. The greatness of their salvation. Remember we talked about that? The greatness of our salvation. That, that, that God called us to Himself. He called us out of light into darkness. He gave us the very faith that we have to believe. And then the, in verses 5 through 11, the blessedness of assurance. Remember the blessed assurance that we have in Christ? So he was reminding them of them things. Why? Because he knew false teachers were coming. False teachers are deceivers. They want to deceive us. They want to deceive the lost from ever coming to Christ because they're greedy. They just want their money. They love their lust. And they're, they're, they're slaves of sin. And so he knew this and he wants them to be reminded of these great foundational doctrinal truths. And you want to know an example of having to need to be reminded, guys? I had to, I had to remind myself. What did Peter say in chapter 1? So that's an example right there of how you and I need to be reminded. I had to go back to verses 12 through 15 to remember what Peter said we need to be reminded of. So I just thought, well, that's a good illustration right there. We need to be reminded, do we not? We need to be reminded. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder. And it says this in verse, in verse 1. He said, The second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind. That's what the NAS says. Sincere mind, it means sincere, pure mind. It's the mind that we received at salvation. The Bible describes it as the mind of Christ. We have, we have been given a new mind and a new heart. But even having a new mind that's sincere, that's been made pure, we still need to be reminded because we can grow dull. Not only forgetting things, like literally forgetting things, but just becoming dull of heart. Calvin says it like this, the minds of the godly become dim. That even men who are endued with learning become in a manner drowsy. Drowsy. We become drowsy except they are stirred up by constant warnings. That's the language of this, guys. That's why God has established the church. So that we, not just me reminding you and stirring you up, but vice versa and each other. That's why we come together. That's why He says don't forsake the assembling so that we can encourage one another as we see the day approaching. We stir each other up with truth. You know, it's like, it's like we all know we should eat healthy, right? We need to take care of ourselves. But sometimes we need to be stirred up by way of reminder from our doctor. You need to be eating healthy. I know I do. Or maybe even a negative test result at the doctor. You need to exercise. You need to do the right thing. Even though we may know we need to do that, we need to be reminded. It's the same with the Word of God. So Peter, once again, goes back to the authority of God's Word in verse 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You remember when he talked about that in the, uh, in, back, in, back in chapter 1? When we were talking about the Scriptures, Right? And he was talking about the authority of, uh, that he had in seeing the majestic glory on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And even the, uh, in, in verse 20 and 21, he talked about that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And he's referring to the Old Testament, but how, how the, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying the same thing. He said that the false teachers, remember, they come with false fables and stories to deceive. But we have the authority of God's Word. He's going back to that very thing. That is what we need to be stirred up with, is the truths of the Scripture. And he says this in verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. The words in the context of chapter 3, these words... Are, are, are those Old Testament 
writings and prophecies pertaining to the day of the Lord. That's the context of what we're dealing with here. That the Old Testament prophets spoke about these things. Now, it's always going to be more clear in the New Testament, but they spoke about these things. We'll, we'll look at a few instances a little later. So the Old Testament has much to say about the return of Jesus Christ and the New Testament as well. Listen to this quote from Nathan Buchnitz, Okay, Nathan is the guy who we're going to be doing a church history study. He is the, uh, the church history professor at Master Seminary. And he says this, speaking of the New Testament, <clears throat> he says this, the hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance for the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that first century believers would greet one another with the term Maranatha, meaning Lord, come quickly. Now I don't say this, I, I, I don't say this trying to um, be critical of anybody, but it doesn't sound like to me that the New Testament church were post-mill. They were anticipating, they were desiring his coming. Now, quickly. I think that's just very clear. Instead of being frightened by the possibility, they clung to it as the culmination of everything they believed. He says, not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects this intense anticipation by referencing Jesus' return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John. And those are two of the shortest books in the New Testament. And so by way of post-mail, I mean, in case some of you didn't know that, that's, that's the view of eschatology that, that they hold, that some hold to, that Christ is not going to come back until this world is completely Christianized. Which they say, He can't come back anytime soon. And I think that's dangerous to think that way. They, they anticipate it. That's what that phrase means. And you can see it right there in the New Testament. Lord, come quickly. So, back to our point, how to get stirred up. You get stirred up by being reminded what the Word of God says. Okay? That's how you and I get stirred up. By being reminded, in this case, of what the Word of God says about His second coming. You get stirred up in the truth. You get stirred up in the truth. The same way you get stirred up to take care of yourself and your health by the truth of a doctor's report. It's the same principle. We get stirred up by the truth. Secondly, we see in verse 3 why to get stirred up or, or why should we be stirred up? Why should you and I be stirred up? In verse 3, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. Why, why do you get stirred up? Why do you need to be stirred up? Because mockers will come. Mockers will come. In the last days, he says, when is that? Beloved, that's now. That's now. From, from the period of his first coming to his second coming, we are in the last days. Okay? That's not counting. That's not talking about just a, a few days before his return. We are in those days. The New Testament refers to it many times. So it said they will come. Peter doesn't want, beloved, that phrase in verse, in verse 1, uh, your sincere mind. It can also have the idea of just a simplicity of understanding the Word of God. Peter doesn't want the simplicity of the, of the people of God, of their understanding, to be corrupted by the lies of these, these mockers. There's no reason to think that these aren't the same men as we've been looking at. These false teachers who Peter describes as mockers. He doesn't want the people of God to be corrupted, to be confused by what these mockers have to say. And he says, so first of all, first of all, that means the first priority. This is a first priority. You need to know that in the last days, mockers will come. That's why you need to be reminded. That's why you need to be stirred up in the truth because liars are coming. Mockers are coming. They're always amongst us. Jude speaks of this. Jude reminds us of this as well in verse 17 and 18. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, 
In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own godly lusts. And Peter's saying the same thing. These mockers. Mockers are one who reproach. They reproach the one that they mock with ridicule. They have disdain or even disgust. That's, that's the idea of mocking. It's the one you're mocking, right? And mockers, who do they mock? They may mock us. They mock the people of God, but they're mocking Jesus Christ. There's a disdain for Jesus Christ. A mockery. Uh, disgust. You ever, you ever notice that, guys? When we're out in the streets, and you just offer somebody a gospel track, and, and it's like it's got some disease on it. And people are just like, like this. You can see the disgust when they know what it is. Jesus Christ disgusts this world in many ways. Um, because He's the light. He's the light of the world. And they don't like the light. So these mockers, that's who they are. It reminded me of a man several years ago. A few of us were preaching on the campus of OU during school. And there was a place where, where all the students would gather. You'd have crowds of hundreds. Hundreds. And, and, it, you know, and I've seen many people mock Jesus Christ. But this one stuck out in particular. My wife was with me that day. And this man, I could not repeat what this guy was saying. It was profane. It was blasphemous. Him and others. Just filthy, vile language. Blasphemous language. And this man laid down in the middle of a crowd of hundreds of people, shouting at the top of his lungs with all kinds of profanity, telling God to strike him dead if he's real. Just mocking God. Mocking God. And it says, uh, in, in this case, the, the, the mockers, which is the same man of chap, in chapter 2. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a line, guys. But yeah, talking about these mockers, it, it describes them. In verse 3, what do they do? Who are these mockers? They are those who, follow, who are following after their own lusts. And so on that day, it reminded me of, 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 that, of that man and many others who were with him. It was like a group of guys and girls. And you could see the heart of it. You could see the heart of why they were mocking this very phrase, following after their own lust. Again, I cannot repeat to you some of the things that were said in front of the whole crowd by this group of people who were mocking the things that they were going to go to their apartment and do. It was this very thing. They, they were those who just, they were controlled by, by lust and depravity. And, and they were the ones mocking. You can mark it down. Mockers, as the Word of God says, are the ones following after their own lust. And sometimes, sometimes you'll get a good picture of that. And so, in this case, these mockers, who are these false teachers. Now, someone doesn't have to be a false teacher to be a mocker. Okay? Like, like many you see, they're just mockers. We had a mocker the other day at the bus station. He was a mocker, just mocking the gospel. But these mockers here are probably, no doubt, the same men that Peter's been referring to, these false teachers. And so what is it that they're mocking? What is it that they're mocking? They're mocking His second coming, which will be made very clear here in just a moment. Why are they mocking His second coming? Because of their sin. Because of their immorality. That's why they're mocking. It says they're following after their own lusts. That word following after, it means to travel or, or, or to go. It's denoting a long-term behavior. This is their life. This is what they live for. This is what drives the, the sinner, the mocker. A love and devoted commitment. They have a devoted commitment to what they love, which is their lusts. And so it causes them to mock a doctrine like this, the second coming of Christ. We've already seen that these men are slaves of sin. So they will conveniently deny and mock the very day of the final consummation of Jesus Christ. The day when the Scriptures teach that they themselves will give an account for what they did in this life. So it's a very convenient thing to mock that, right? To try to escape that reality. So why do you need to be stirred up, beloved, by constant reminders of the truth? Of this truth. All the truths. But in this, in this instance, why do, you need, why do you need to be reminded by these constant reminders of this truth? 
It's this, to keep your sincere minds, beloved, your new mind that you've been given in Christ from being misled. That's what Peter's saying. To keep your mind from being misled, from being corrupted by the lies of these mockers. Now, let's look at their lies in the next point. Let's look at their lies. We're going to see that they ignore the past. They ignore the past. Point number three, how do mockers ignore the past? And we're going to see this in verses 4-6. through six. How do mockers ignore the past? Verse 4, it says, Following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of His coming? Really? The prophets foretold of His coming in the Old Testament. Jesus foretold of His coming. The angels at His ascension, remember that guys? He'll come back just the way He left. They foretold, they foretold of His coming. And all the apostles foretold of His coming. You see, these men, they can't deny the reality of it in the Word of God. It's all over the Word of God. They can't deny it, so they have to mock it. They're much like the Pharisees. Do you remember the Pharisees, guys? They were witnesses of His miracles. They couldn't deny Him, so what they do? Well, He did it by the power of the devil. Which is another form of mocking and blasphemy, obviously. So they can't deny it, so they mock it. They, and we're going to see uh, how, do these, how, do these, how do these mockers ignore the past? They, they arrogantly mock it. We'll see first of all. Arrogantly in verse 4. This mocking, as all mocking comes with arrogance. It's an arrogant thing to mock the living God. It's an arrogant thing and a foolish thing. We can see, we can see an example of this in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 17, verse 15. You know, Jeremiah, he was, a, he was a prophet, right? Warning the southern kingdom that judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And you know, Jeremiah said nobody really ever listened to him. He was the weeping prophet. But, but that's what he warned. Judgment's coming to the nation of Israel. You're, because of your idolatry and your, and your disobedience to the Lord, judgment's coming. Listen to what they tell him in Jeremiah 17.15. This is the words of Jeremiah. He says, look, they keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Where is the promise, Jeremiah? Where's the promise of the judgment? Let it come now. You've been saying it. It's the same thing. Arrogant. Mocking. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And some say uh, that a better, a, better, a better understanding of this phrase, where's the promise of His coming, is where's the fulfillment of His coming. That may be more what they're saying. Where, where's the fulfillment, in other words? In Jeremiah's day, where's the fulfillment? In our day, where's the fulfillment? You Christians have been saying this for 2,000 years. And listen to the logic of these mockers, guys. It hasn't happened yet. So that means it's not going to? That's like saying, I haven't died yet. <laughs> but you can mark it down, you will. It's the same logic. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so it's not going to happen. For since the fathers fell asleep, in, uh, it's still in verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is what the mockers are saying. So the fathers, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, ever since they fell asleep, all continues just like it's been. Listen to what they're arguing, beloved. They're arguing for the stability of the earth. Okay? That's not necessarily wrong in every aspect. They're, they're, they're arguing, hey, you know, it's going to continue like, like it has been. And so, ironically, turn, turn to Genesis 6. I'll make my point from the Word. Or Genesis 8, I'm sorry. Genesis 8, because ironically, there is truth to what they're saying. There is some truth to what they're saying. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. We can read this. Now, this is after the flood, okay? That's very important to remember. This is after the flood, not before. 
And listen to what the Lord says, or the, or the Word of God says, starting in verse 18 in Genesis chapter 8. It says, So Noah went out, went out of the ark, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Before we look at verse 22, look over in chapter 9 verse 11. Because you notice he says, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And, and chapter 9, verse 11, we get a little more understanding of what he's saying. The Lord says, I established my covenant, the rainbow, the bow in the sky. I established my covenant with you and all flesh shall never be cut off by water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So that's what the Lord's saying. I'm not going to flood the world. I'm not going to destroy the world with water ever again. And so every time we see the bow in the cloud, we're reminded of that truth. The bow represents God's bow of vengeance. Did you know that? His bow is now pointing upward. It's not pointing downward. That's what that bow is. It's representing like a bow. And so it's a promise that God poured out His wrath upon His Son on the cross. And He's not going to, he's not going to destroy the world. So that's, but that's what the bow symbolizes. It's not pointed down here. But, now, listen to verse 22 in Genesis chapter 8. This is where there's, there is some truth to what these guys are saying. He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So there is stability upon the earth. This is after the flood. Until, until God decides to intervene once again at the end. But this is, as we'll see, this is what they're conveniently forgetting. They're saying ever since the beginning of creation that it'll be true that the world will go on like it's always gone on. And we'll look at that here next. And that is our next point. Uh, Sub-point B under point three, they, they, they ignore the past not only arrogantly, but willfully willfully in, in verse 5 for when they maintain this it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water we'll look at verse 5 and then we'll go to 6 so they willfully that means they, they willfully deliberately neglected the biblical history of the flood that's what's going on here the King James, I like the way the King James says it. They're willingly ignorant of these things. They don't want there to be judgment, beloved. That's, that's what's going on with these men. These mockers, they don't want there to be judgment. Why? Because they want a license to sin. The thought of a, the thought of a judgment dampers a license to sin, does it not? So that's what these men, that's, that's their... That's their thinking. So they deliberately forget the flood. That's what he's saying here in verse 5. They deliberately, willfully forget the flood. That's like saying, you know, I don't believe in hell, so I really have nothing to worry about. What's the logic in that? Because you don't believe in hell, you don't think you have anything to worry about. Try that jumping off a cliff. I don't believe in the law of gravity, so I really don't have anything to worry about. doesn't change reality. And the fact that these men want to deliberately try to forget this historical event where God destroyed the world doesn't change the reality that it happened. And of course, Peter's heading to something. He's heading to something. Why does the flood escape their notice? Beloved, this is real important because you know what the flood taught? You know what the flood teaches us? The flood is not just a historical account, right? It is. And there's geographical evidence all over the world. Go up on the top of the topless mountains and you'll find shark uh, teeth of shark and clamshells. 
And there's flood accounts for every, every culture in the world. But what does the flood teach us? What does the flood remind us of? It reminds us of this truth and this is what the markers don't like. The flood reminds us that this is a moral universe. This is a moral universe and sin will not go unpunished. There is not only a Creator, as we'll see, they don't deny that, but there is also the same One who is Creator is the Judge. Is the Judge. Genesis 1 Early in Genesis 1, it tells us that a watery chaos, because we, we see in verse 5 where he says that by the Word of God, by God's Word, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. To sum up what he's talking about, guys, we just are reminded of what Genesis 1 tells us, that a watery chaos covered the earth, which made life impossible for man. So God separated the waters by making the expanse of the sky so that the waters were above and below the expanse. The waters on the earth were then collected so that the dry ground would exist. Out of water and by water. That's what that's meaning. The water was His means. All of this at His command. At His command. At His command. By the Word of God using water as His means, He created this world that we live in. Psalm 33, 6. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of His nostril, or the breath of His mouth, all of their host. Hebrews eleven three. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by what? The Word of God. At His command, the worlds were created. They were prepared. Verse 6 says this, and through which, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The, through which, it means the same means, by the same way, by His Word and with the same means. By His Word and, and through water, He created. And by His Word and through water, He destroyed the first time. That's what verse 6 is telling us. This is the part that they willfully forget. It's not, the, it's not the, the creation that they deny. Look at the end of verse 4. This is what the mockers were saying. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So it's not the creation that they're denying, as we'll look at again here in just a moment. They recognize the creation. That's what we see at the end of verse 4. They recognize the creation. But as I stated a while ago, they failed to recognize the Creator and authority as judge. These particular markers don't have a problem with the creation. You know why? Satan's lie of evolution had not come yet. But no doubt, they're still markers. And what lies, what lies at the heart of these markers and what lies at the heart of of the, the lie of evolution, it's the love of sin. It's the, it's the love of lust. It's the, it's the not wanting to be accountable to the judge. And so it's just another one of Satan's lies. It's still the love of sin and the desire to somehow escape the judge that drives false teachers and mockers and those who teach evolution to such foolishness. It's the love of sin, is it not? The light is coming to the world, Jesus said, but men love darkness rather than light. And they will do anything to try to stamp out the light and the reality of judgment day. The reality of God as judge. These mockers are foolish in their arrogant and willful ignoring of the past. They are arrogantly and willfully ignoring the past, all in an attempt to escape the inevitable judgment of the Lord. Very simple what's going on here. Which leads us to our last point today. In verse 7. In verse 7. 
In our statement up top, it said they ignore the past, hoping to escape the future. And that's what we see in verse 7. We're going to see that their mocking changes nothing. Their mocking changes nothing. Just like nobody's mocking changes anything. By His Word, we see that phrase again in verse 7. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. By His Word. That means at His command, it's done. Have you ever had somebody, guys, ask you a favor, right? Or you ask somebody a favor? Hey, just say the Word and it's done. That's what it really is here. God just says the Word. Just as He brought the world in creation, just as He destroyed the world the first time through a flood, is the way it's going to be at the end. At His Word, at His command. The same authoritative Word is what will bring an end to all things. Because we have to remember the laws of nature, because that's what they want to argue. Well, nature's going to continue just like it was. Why? Because there's laws, right? But what do laws tell us? There's a law giver. The law giver. The law, the laws of nature are whose laws? They are his laws. And he can step in anytime he wants to. It will be the same as at the flood, beloved, except the means we see in verse 7 will not be water, but fire. Now I'm not gonna, there's no reason for us to speculate exactly. How this is going to be because it doesn't it, the nature of it is not revealed. It's not revealed. It could be it could be God using um, the things that are in His creation already. When you think of atoms, and it could it could be something nuclear. It could be it could be something uh, another part of His creation, a, a volcano or an earthquake or any of these things or a or a uh, a comet. Who know, we don't know. Or it could be just fire from heaven. But fire is spoke about in the Bible at the final judgment in the Old Testament and New. And it tells, it, it tells us this very clearly here. And then down in verse 12, we'll talk about it here in a few weeks. We see this concept again in the Old Testament. Listen to a couple of verses. Isaiah 66.15 for, for behold, the Lord will come in fire in His chariots like the whirlwinds to, to render His anger with fury and rebuke with flames of fire. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and evil, every evildoer would be like chaff. Sounds like Psalms 1. The wicked are like chaff. They blow away in the wind. It says that day is coming and will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Don't know how much of this is literal, how much is figurative, what it's going to look like, but He says in verse 7, by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Not water. Fire. Look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Don't know exactly what it's going to be, but the Bible speaks of this fire on that final day. And Jesus also makes comparison of this day, of this last day that, that, that verse 7 is referring to, verse 12 is referring to. He makes a comparison of this day. As Peter's doing, Peter's, Peter's comparing this final day to what? The days of Noah. Except the means is going to be fire, not water. Jesus also makes comparison to this, to the days of Noah. Turn in your Bibles. We'll close here. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 37-39. Because Jesus... Again, ties this, these same end time events to, to the days of Noah, just like Peter's doing. Matthew 24, 37-39 <clears throat> For the coming of the Son of Man will be just 
like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Isn't that amazing, beloved, that Peter is comparing, he's making comparisons to Noah's day, the type of judgment, and to when Christ returns, the type of judgment. And then Jesus makes comparisons really from a different angle. That the days are even going to be the same. What is this telling us, guys? It's going to be like the days of Noah when the flood came. They were eating and drinking. They were living life. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. What is this telling us? They weren't ready. That's what He's telling us. As in the days of Noah, those people were not ready. As many, the the majority of this world, they're not ready. They weren't ready. We know that they were warned. How do we know that they were warned? The same book that we've been looking at. Remember? In chapter 2, verse 6, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's not in the Old Testament account, but it's in the New. Peter was not only building a boat, he was warning his generation of the wrath to come. The watery grave that's going to come if you're not in this ark. You're going to perish. No doubt the mockers were many in that day, beloved. No one listened to him. Just his family are the only ones that got in the boat. He was a preacher of righteousness. And they perished. They were the mockers of his day. Noah, what is this rain you're talking about? It's never rained. And you're out here building a boat. What a fool. Can you imagine the mockery that he faced? Warning a world that the flood's going to come and they're going, what are you talking about? Where's the promise of the flood, Noah? No doubt those things were said. And what happened? The flood came. And they perished. And and we can see it in, in, in the words of Jesus Christ. They didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. It was too late. So it's no different in our day. Peter's making this comparison that in the same way as that, at the word of His command, that it's going to be over. The door's going to be shut. The door was shut on the ark and those who were left out perished under the wrath of God. And we have the people, the mockers of our day, God hasn't judged my sin yet. I get away with my sin. And even the mockery of a false gospel. I do know Jesus and I love my sin and I'm free to sin as the mockers were saying last week. But beloved, it's no different. Our world has got to see the foolishness of mockery. To mock God. To mock His judgment. That's why this account is in this text. Look at what He did. Look at what He did thousands of years ago to that generation. They were warned and they perished. Proverbs 10 verse 28 says, The hope of the righteous is gladness, right? Again, our hope, our hope, our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in His return. And there's gladness and joy. But the expectation of the wicked perishes. The expectation of the wicked. God's not going to judge me. I'm going to live a long life. I'm going to live a long, luxurious life of wealth, ease, comfort. And then it perishes. It's over. Don't be like the foolish mockers, beloved. That's what we must tell this world. Don't be like the don't be a mocker. Don't be an arrogant mocker. Don't think that because God hasn't judged you that it won't happen. Don't think that because you haven't died yet that you're not going to. You have an appointment to keep with death. Death is the most certain thing in your very life that you will die and stand before this God. That's what we must warn. We must warn the same as Noah 
to get on the ark. And who is the ark? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater ark. We must warn our generation to get in the ark. Judgment is coming. You don't have to perish. You can be forgiven for all of your sin if you will come to Christ who laid down His life, gave up His very life so that His enemies could be forgiven, so that they could come in the ark, so that they could be clothed in His righteousness and protected from the wrath that's to come. That's the message that you and I have. And that's why we need to continue to stir one another up with these truths so we don't spiritually just get lulled to sleep and say, you know, I'm good. No, beloved, you and I may be good. We may be saved. We may be protected from this wrath. But we have marching orders from our King. And that is to go and to preach the Gospel to the whole creation and warn of that very day. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this reminder in Your Word. We thank You for Your Word. And the truths in it, God. Father, we know we're weak. We know we are like sheep. Father, we know we can easily go astray. But Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. We thank You for each other. Thank You for Your church, Lord. Father, I thank You for the songs we sing. I thank You for Your Word that we look at weekly. And Lord, I just pray for each every person in here, Lord, and those who are not here. Father, that we will, we will, we will heed these, these commands of Yours, Lord, to be stirred up by way of reminder. That we will never take our eye off of the prize. That we will remember the truths in Your Word of our great salvation. That our salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, our great assurance of salvation, Lord, and, and the promise of Your return. Lord, we just thank You for these great and mighty truths of Your Word, Father. We love you today, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.